0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary bdw report prohibited by law see terms and conditions
1: 18 plus this content may not be suitable for all ages listener discretion is advised
2: if you're a woman never leave a bar at night alone especially if you're walking i noticed
3: the man grab the doorknob and try to open the locked door I slowly grabbed a knife from our knife
4: block and held it at my chest. We heard someone banging on my window. I started to sob. My brother stroked my head to calm me down, but it didn't help.
1: From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed.
0: This episode is sponsored by Wondery's Cold Podcast, a narrative series that focuses on missing persons cases by investigative journalist and host Dave Cauley. Season 3, The Search for Cherie follows two suspects in the 1985 disappearance of Cherie Warren. Prime members can listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast Cold in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. Welcome back in everyone and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you 3 true horrifying tales that are sure to horrify and terrify. So sit back, and listen close, as we dive into the horror. We open the show hearing from Reddit user AholBW, featuring voice work by and Mauschel, and we have an experience with the infamous Bike Path Killer.
2: I, a 40-year-old female, went to the University of Buffalo fresh out of high school in the early 2000s. At that time, the online world was a bit like the Wild West, which included having to do quite a bit more digging to find specific information than today's split-second Google search. As such, it was a much easier time for colleges and universities to hide or spin campus crime statistics to make themselves look better for prospective wallets. I mean, students. Case in point... I was at orientation a month or two before my freshman year, and one of the mass presentations I had to attend was about campus safety. Bright-faced upperclassmen orientation aides enthusiastically verbally filleted the school, boasting about how North Campus was in, at the time, the safest town in the country, Amherst, New York, and that the only murder in recent history had occurred nine years ago to an unfortunate student named Linda Yalem who was murdered on the campus's bike path during a lone morning run. It was a fate that we were assured could be avoided by simply not hitting the bike path alone. What they conveniently didn't reveal was that A, the killer had never been caught, and B, Yalem wasn't his only victim. He was a serial rapist and eventual serial killer who had already been active in the area for at least 25 years in downtown Buffalo and on the secluded bike paths of the Buffalo suburbs. In retrospect, had this information been as readily accessible as it is now, it probably would have kept me from the most bone-chilling encounter of my life. Fast forward three years. I was a very depressed 20-year-old who was struggling with her sexual identity and her parents' reaction to it in a much less accepting time than now. I'd left school and, to avoid being home, shacked up with a woman who'd promised me the world but then rejected me in favor of her ex-girlfriend on the night I moved in, and eventually turned out to be a felon who drained vulnerable would-be love interest bank accounts. Though that's a very convoluted story for another time. So clearly, I was an unhappy young adult desperate for love and a sense of belonging, sometimes to my own detriment. Despite my roommate's many unkind and hurtful gestures, I stuck with it in the naive hope that she would eventually come around and fulfill her pie-in-the-sky promises to me. On a particular July night, that hope just fell flat. I was at Roxy's Green Room, a now-defunct lesbian bar and club that many wayward buffalo lesbians, myself included, flocked to at night to feel a much-needed sense of community and to hopefully land a special someone. Since the latter just wasn't happening for me, and since I didn't know yet what kind of person she really was, I was still stuck on my roommate. She liked to dangle emotional carrots overhead out of some sick joy that she got from making me hurt, but also hang on to hope. And after a promise to hit Roxy's alone with me and talk about us, she showed up with her ex turned current and shut me out. I was wounded and upset enough to leave around 1 a.m., well before the 4 a.m. last call that I was still young and spry enough to stomach and without a ride home, like my usually wiser self would have secured. While my apartment on Delaware was walking distance from Roxy's, it was a good half-hour walk. Being as emotionally charged as I was, though, I angrily hoofed it down the main street sidewalk, still managing to follow the pedestrian rule of walking against traffic, despite stupidly ignoring the rule I knew well from years of watching forensic shows. If you're a woman, never leave a bar at night alone, especially if you're walking. I got exactly halfway home when a dark green sedan started driving toward me. I thought nothing of it until the car slowed down near me as I walked. A lone, middle-aged man was in the car with a skin tone that I originally associated with the guy being Italian, but in retrospect, he could have easily been Puerto Rican. He had dark hair and, most importantly, almost impossibly dark eyes that seemed to hold no light or good intentions. Now, I was used to guys being pigs. I'd been catcalled by downtown construction workers when an ex-girlfriend and I shared a kiss. And I had endured all matter of wholly unwanted, graphic, and ham-fisted advances from dudes at school. And although I'd never take the stance that I was asking for it, I was young and thin, so I was dressed in a tight, red crop top with flare-legged black spandex pants. The get-up was meant to turn women's heads, so I wasn't exactly surprised that I caught the attention of the wrong sex. I paid it no mind past mild irritation that a guy old enough to be my dad would look at me like that as the guy drove off and turned at the next intersection behind me. My walk resumed. I put the guy out of my mind, and I continued my trek. But the peace didn't last. About two or three minutes later, I see a familiar green car coming up on me again. This time, the guy's window was down a bit, and he shouted, hey, in a beckoning manner and gestured in a way that made me wonder if he thought I was a Lady of the night? Now that incensed me. Despite my recent struggles with my identity and the resulting entropy in my life, I was always a good kid. I flashed him a quick, annoyed look to inform him that despite the mildly revealing clothing, he was barking up the wrong tree for several reasons, and then I ignored him, focusing forward. He sped off again and turned again. At that point, it was clear that the dude was casing me like a cat burglar cases a house, It was before the time of Uber or even widespread use of cell phones, and with no cabs passing by, I had little hope of getting one. Public transit existed, but it was both sparse and not running nearby. The stretches of main between intersections were long, and I'd probably be spotted on them anyway since the guy was circling. Being 15 minutes away from both Roxy's and my home, there was also no way I could get anywhere near either place before the green car came back around again. I quickly thumbed through my mental Rolodex of true crime show inspired safety tips that should have kept me out of this situation in the first place. Tip number one, get to an open business, inform the clerk, have him or her call the police and stay put. Then the guy would either give up or get caught. I was coming up on the convenience store on the opposite side of the street where I'd bought a pack of cigarettes earlier in the night, but as I got closer, the desolate blackness through the windows told me it was closed. I looked around for something else another bar, a gas station, anything. But the street was flanked by shuttered brick buildings and a locked up church. Then came the headlights and green again. Again, the guy slowed down as he approached me, but his demeanor had shifted again. He put his palm out impatiently as if he couldn't understand my lack of complicity. Come on! The guy yelled through his now open window, his face an equal picture of aggression, intimidation, and frustration. I kept out of arm's reach on the sidewalk and once again ignored him, but this time, I was properly shaken. He angrily punched the gas and was off on his familiar circuit back around to me. Now I knew I was in trouble. The guy's behavior was escalating, and I was genuinely scared that his next move would be to grab me off the sidewalk and pull me into his car. From there, God only knew what sort of depravity I was in for. I scrambled through my memory for another safety tip, and I remembered that making myself both impossible to ignore and obviously in distress could get me some much-needed attention from an outside party. I ran into the middle of Main Street and started frantically waving my hands and shouting at every car that was coming my way. The first car drove by. The second car drove by. The terror in me was palpable. I knew the stories of city dwellers like Kitty Genovese, who were left to their horrible fates at the hands of monsters by jaded throngs of people who heard the attacks perpetrated on them and their cries for help but did nothing out of both an assumption that someone else would step up and a reluctance to get involved. Would I be the next victim of the bystander effect, snatched away to an early end because of big city indifference? As I was beginning to lose hope but still determined to keep trying while thinking of my next bold move, a van pulled over that had four black guys in it. As a white woman, I was relieved. I knew that statistically, male predators overwhelmingly tend to prey on women of their same race. In a game of numbers, this van full of guys was exceptionally safer than the single stalker in the green car. I opted to take the gamble. I frantically told them about the man in the green car who kept circling around the block and following me and begged for a ride home. The driver asked if I had any money in exchange for the favor. I didn't. Then he asked if I had any cigarettes. I may be one of the only people you'll ever meet who actually had her life saved by smokes. Though I had never been a smoker before, I briefly picked up the filthy habit because NY State bars still allowed smoking, and it was a weird part of Buffalo lesbian bar culture that I emulated to fit in, yet another way that I was, as are many, kind of an idiot in my early 20s. Yes, I answered urgently. I just bought a pack and you can have the whole thing if you get me home. Admittedly, I was initially a little miffed that the driver wanted something from me in exchange for not letting me get abducted off the street, as well as the implication that he may not have helped me if I had nothing. Still, I had the smokes, he had a vehicle, and the stars had, hopefully, aligned. Regardless of how it went down, I had help if he let me in and the details didn't matter. After a second or two of thought, which seemed like an eternity to me, The driver agreed and one of the two dudes in the back opened the side door for me and got out so I could slide into the back seat behind the driver. As the door to my safe carriage full of impromptu nights shut and I got buckled in, I looked out my window just in time to see the green car creeping past the van and proving to my saviors that I was telling a very disturbing true story. Until my dying day, I will never forget that man's eyes. Feeling safe surrounded by a closed van full of young, tough-looking rescuers, I looked that bastard dead in the eyes. Part of me was rightfully terrified, but another part of me wanted to look right at him defiantly and tell him with my eyes, I got away from you. I win. I was repaid with the most evil, hateful look that I've ever had directed at me, let alone seen. His eyes were black, black like a cat's eyes when it sees a bug in the house and its hunting instincts cause its pupils to blow to allow more light in but at least there's usually a hint of playful mischief in a hunting cat's eyes. The eyes I was seeing were those of a pure, unadulterated predator, and the vitriol that practically oozed from them as he glared at me let me know exactly how he felt about his prey having the audacity to elude him. He drove off into the night, and so did we, in a bit less direct route to make sure that we lost him. After a blessedly quick jaunt with frequent looks behind my shoulder, I was delivered home, one pack of cigarettes short, but alive and in one piece. The first thing that I did when I got in the door was to check the locks on absolutely everything. After that, the adrenaline started to wear off and the pure fear set in. I was so terrified that the man in the green sedan was searching the area where I got dropped off that I grabbed the cordless phone, then lay completely flat on the living room floor for hours to keep totally out of sight from any of my apartment windows. As I lay there, I called the Buffalo police and relayed my terrifying tale in as much detail as I could give them. Being painfully aware of the prevalence of hate crimes against the LGBT community at the time, I told the cops it was possible that the man was cruising near Roxy's to prey on vulnerable queer women who were out and about. In hindsight, I think the guy just saw who he thought was an easy mark out by herself and availed himself of the opportunity to strike." Fast forward another four years, and I'd moved out to Chicago to live with my then-girlfriend. For about half of my four years there, I was pretty homesick. I'd never lived anywhere except my home state of New York, and I went there knowing no one except my ex, who wasn't exactly an empathetic soul, adding to my feelings of isolation. I coped by keeping up on upstate New York news so I'd feel a little less far away. On a chilly mid-January morning in 2007, I was at our computer looking up headlines from my home state when one from WBFO popped up that immediately snared my attention. Bike Path Rapist is Arrested. By then, I knew the moniker well. The internet had since aged into a beautifully organized repository of sometimes knowledge. And despite the lack of transparency from my alma mater, I became familiar with the Buffalo Area Mystery Man and his active status throughout my time in Buffalo. Now, I had a name for the specter responsible for that bit of eeriness that was always in the back of my mind when I was a student. The bike path rapist was revealed as Altemio Sanchez, a middle-aged native of Puerto Rico who coached his son's sports teams and was affectionately referred to as Uncle Al in his neighborhood. As with many other killers, his disguises were his community involvement and just being ordinary. The man was estimated to have been responsible for 9 to 15 rapes around the Buffalo area since 1975 and had confessed to three murders, the Yalem murder in 1991, a second in 1992, and a third which had only occurred three and a half months prior to his capture. I don't know if you've ever felt your heart somehow get wedged up into your voice box and get dropped into the depths of your stomach simultaneously, but believe me when I say that it's possible, given the right catalyst. For me... That catalyst was the printed proof that the man was active while I lived in Buffalo and frequented Roxy's. More so, I knew that serial killers rarely take breaks as lengthy as the one between his 1992 and 2006 killings. He had to have at least been attempting to sate his evil impulses for those 14 years. That realization gave me a very, very bad feeling that I'd crossed paths with someone much more dangerous than I'd realized. The news article had no picture of Sanchez, but this sickening feeling in me prodded me to find one. It was almost as if I knew what I would see before I ever looked at him. I yahoo searched his name because that was still a respectful means of finding things on the internet in 2007. And I was horrified, though not surprised, to see those same black soulless predatory eyes that I looked into four times on that summer night in Buffalo in 2003. The timeline fit, my profile as a victim fit, if he did, in fact, mistake me for a downtown prostitute, and barring all else, I knew those eyes. I had a potentially deadly encounter with Altemio Sanchez, the bike path rapist, aka the bike path killer. My lack of sense put me in his orbit, and a van of angels pulled me out of it. I know who I saw, and as God is my witness, I will never be convinced otherwise. Though many of the rapes fell victims to statutes of limitation, Altemio Sanchez pled guilty to the three murders and was sentenced to 75 years to life in prison. In essence, the guy won't be exposed to the outside again unless he's in a body bag. So, bike path rapist, even if you're worm food and being wheeled out in a bag on a prison gurney, let's not meet.
1: Do you have your own terrifying encounter? Did something unexplained happen to you? Let us know and get featured on the podcast. Email at disturbedpodcast.com.
0: I don't know about you guys, but where I'm at, things have gotten cold. And yeah, the temperature for one, but also cold as in the narrative podcast series from Wondery focusing on missing persons cases. And yeah, this time of year, the temperature drops. You don't go out quite as much. And so you've got that extra time to bundle up and tune in to hear about some of these important cases. And with Cold, investigative journalist and host Dave Colley takes on a single story with each season. The new season 3 follows two suspects in the 1985 disappearance of Cherie Warren, while also examining the dangerous escalation of domestic abuse and sexual violence. Cherie was a recently divorced young mother looking for a fresh start, with a new job and new boyfriend. But on a crisp October evening, after a long day, she said goodbye to her co-workers, left the office, and was never heard from again. With both her ex-husband and new boyfriend having a history of violence, investigators had two prime suspects on their hands, now was one of them responsible. This new season explores what really happened to Cherie, Now the best part is that these full seasons that focus on a single case give you such an in-depth look into all the aspects and avenues of the case. You'll explore all possibilities because nothing's off the table. Prime members can listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast Cold in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. And we thank Wondery and Amazon Music for their support of Disturbed. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she would invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.
1: Can't get enough disturbed. We've got you covered on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes, ad-free listening, shout outs, and more. Visit disturbedpodcast.com slash support. You'll be glad you did. Now back to the horror. Disturbed Podcast with your host, Chad.
0: Up next we hear from Reddit user Lyrical Lotus, featuring voice work by Tanya EB and we narrowly avoid an attempted break-in.
3: This happened several years ago. I was home alone one evening when I heard a knock at the back door. This confused me as no one ever used that door. My husband and I lived in a fourplex at the time, and all of the units had a back door at the top of a narrow staircase. These doors were a little inconvenient to access, as you'd have to go around the building and up the narrow stairs, as opposed to the wider main entrance at the front. It didn't make sense to use the back entrance, and I couldn't think of anyone who would go to that door to visit. As I approached the back door, I saw two tall men in the window, standing at the door. A chill went down my spine. I did not feel safe opening the door, so I called out, Hello? One of the men tapped on the window. Yes, hello. May we come in? We are with Bresnan. At the time, my husband and I had Bresnan for cable but did not have any issues with it. I replied, We're not having any issues with Bresnan. Is there a problem? Ma'am, the man said, Can we come in? We're servicing the area, and it's important we look at your cable. I shook my head. We're not having any issues, I repeated, so there's no need to stop by. Ma'am, we are visiting every resident. Let us in so we can do our job. I noticed the man grabbed the doorknob and tried to open the locked door. I slowly grabbed a knife from our knife block and held it at my chest. We are not having any issues, I repeated, trying not to convey shakiness of my voice. So you don't need to be here. The two figures appeared to shuffle and then straighten. Ma'am, let us in. We're on a deadline and need to do our job. I glanced at the clock, gauging when my husband would arrive home from work. I gripped the knife tighter. Ma'am, ma'am. I saw him try the doorknob again. I closed my eyes and felt an overwhelming gratitude of always locking my doors. Just then, a thought came to the forefront of my mind. I'm sorry I can't help you. Could I please get your names and badge numbers? I can give your supervisor a call to let them know our cable is fine. I heard another shuffle and one of the men replied, No need to, ma'am. We are sorry we wasted your time. With that, both of the men exited the staircase and disappeared into the night. Shaken up, I held the knife tight and tried to get my bearings. I remember making a mental note to call the cable company or the police, but my hands were shaking so badly I couldn't hold my phone. With the knife still grasped to my chest and the phone falling out of my other hand, I sank to the floor and cried. When my husband returned home, I told him what had happened. I was still very shaken up and had started crying again after he came home. He immediately called the Bresnan Cable Company and spoke to a representative who informed us that no one from their company was out on assignment in our area. The next day, we asked our neighbors if they had a visit from the company. No one had. So, to the two creepy men who tried to break into my home under the guise of cable repair, let's not meet.
1: Are you loving the show? Let us know with a positive rating and review. In return, we'll help you hide the body.
0: And finally, we close out the show hearing from Reddit user JuicyLemon20, featuring voice work by Nicole Doolin. And we realize something
4: is watching. Something was watching me and my brother from behind my window. No one would ever believe me but I wanna share this story because I talked about it yesterday for the first time. I live in Northern Europe. My country is cold and covered by a large forest and several lakes. My family consists of my mother, my father, and an older brother who is three years older than me. He's really important in the story. It's also important to know that my parents' house is in the middle of nowhere, just forest around it. There aren't even proper roads or any streetlights The nearest neighbor lives really far away. In my country, winter comes early and lasts longer than summer, so the days are dark almost all year round. My father is a fireman and my mother is a nurse, so they have always been on night shifts. They have left me and my brother home alone since we were just toddlers. I don't know if it's even legal to leave us alone, but my brother has always been good at taking care of me. This particular evening was close to Christmas, Both of us were on winter break, but my brother still went to his ice hockey practice. He was really tired that night after practice. Father and mother had gone to work at night and left us alone. I was eight at the time, and my brother was eleven. We often slept next to each other downstairs in our parents' bed, but I decided to be a big girl that night and sleep in my own bed upstairs. I really just wanted to play my Nintendo, and I knew my brother wouldn't let me. My brother was so tired after training and he just wanted to go to sleep. We ate, brushed our teeth, and went to our rooms upstairs. My room faced the forest and his room faced the only dirt road. There was a hall and a toilet between our rooms. My brother must have fallen asleep right away, but I played and played. I played for so long that I lost track of time. I was under my covers in case my brother came to scold me. I started to hear something outside. However, I didn't pay attention to it at first. I have lived all my life in the middle of the forest. You can hear voices from there all the time. The small noises changed in a second. Someone started shouting, almost screaming. It sounded like a grown man who was wounded. I lifted my head from under the cover, startled, and listened for a moment. I called out my brother's name, but he didn't answer. I got up from my bed and ran to my brother's room. He slept soundly. I started rocking him awake. At the same time, I saw from his alarm clock that it was two in the morning. My brother woke up confused. ''Do you hear that?'' I asked in a whisper. My brother's eyes widened and all sleep vanished from his eyes. He sprang up. He didn't say anything. He walked towards my room. The shouting came from somewhere in the forest. We stood together in my room and stared out into the darkness. I think someone needs help, I said quietly, but my brother's expression didn't change. His face was like stone. No, no one needs the help of two kids. Besides, if he needed help, he would be screaming for help. My brother turned around. He was right. I heard no words, just screaming. My brother walked downstairs, and I ran after him. Our house has three doors. He tried each of them to make sure they were locked. He took our father's headlamp because it had the strongest light. Then he picked up the house phone. It was 2010, so not all the kids had their own phones. He made sure all the lights were off and took my hand. He started to lead us back upstairs. Then he stopped. The shouting had changed. It no longer sounded scared or needy for help. It sounded irritated, almost angry like it was annoyed that we didn't come out looking for it. My brother squeezed my hand and pulled me upstairs. He stared at my room for a moment before he pulled me into his room with him. He closed the door and sat behind his bed, pulling me into his arms. It was dark everywhere. My brother hadn't turned on the headlamp, but he had 112 ready on the phone, our country's emergency number. We sat there in silence. The sound had come closer, until it was clearly behind the window of my room. We heard someone banging on my window. I started to sob. My brother stroked my head to calm me down, but it didn't help. I was so scared. The sound seemed to be coming closer and closer. It had climbed the fire escape under my window and was now traveling along the rain gutters towards my brother's window. Then it became quiet. It stopped screaming but we could hear it clinging to the rain gutters to get closer to us. Then it was too quiet. My brother turned on the headlamp and pointed the light towards his window. Nothing. He turned off the light and waited a moment. Then he pointed the light at the window again. Nothing. He turned it off and waited. Then there was a big crash, as if a big pile of snow had dropped from the roof down to the terrace. My brother flashed the light in the window. There was something on it the kind of trace that is left when you breathe too close to the glass in cold weather there was a trace of mist on it my brother immediately turned off the light whatever it was it had fallen down because my brother's window has nothing to hold on to we started hearing moaning it sounded only partially human anymore it sounded more like a bear. if you've ever heard the sound a bear makes when it's been shot That is what it sounded like, but it had a touch of a man. Then the voice became angry again, and it threw a full tantrum. It started hitting the wall of the house. I squeezed my eyes shut and pressed my head against my brother's shirt. It raged for a while, but started to whine and moan again. It no longer sounded human at all. I can't describe what it was like, but it didn't sound natural. My brother dropped the headlamp on the floor and hugged me tightly. We listened to the sound for quite a long time. I don't remember at what point I fell asleep, but I woke up in the morning. The beautiful morning sun reflected against the white snow. I was laying on my brother's bed, and he was sitting next to me reading comics. He smiled. Had I been dreaming? I didn't have time to say anything when we heard the lock on the front door open. It was nine o'clock. Dad had come home. My brother cheerfully jumped out of bed and ran to greet Dad downstairs. Maybe I had a nightmare and went to sleep next to my brother. It doesn't sound impossible, especially since my brother didn't mention it in the morning. I convinced myself that I had really seen a nightmare that felt real. I believed it for so many, many years. However, that changed. My brother came to visit me yesterday. Nowadays, I live in the capital of my country, Far from my mother and father, because I go to university. My brother broke up with his long term girlfriend, and I promised that he could bunk in my place as long as he needed. We had a lot of fun, just like old times. We drank some wine and watched a movie and just talked about everything. Then we started talking about a little deeper things, which usually happens after drinking wine. I turned to look out my window. Winter was coming, and it was already dark. It brought back childhood memories. I told him about a dream I had when I was little while looking at the street lamps outside. This darkness reminds me of when I had a nightmare as a child. I dreamed that someone screamed behind my window and I hid in your room with you. I laughed and turned to look at my brother. My brother is now 23. He is huge. He isn't a bodybuilding and has a blonde beard. He looks a bit like a viking and I've never seen a look on him like that as an adult. He looked at me with big eyes. He was pale, like he had seen a ghost. I freaked out a little. What? I asked awkwardly. You remember that? He asked. It got quiet. What do you mean? Wasn't it a dream? I was so confused. My brother looked really startled. "'as if I had digged up a memory from his mind that he wanted to forget. "'I thought you wouldn't remember that. "'You were so little. "'I hoped you would forget. "'My brother looked at me blankly and told me his side of the story. "'He told me how I had fallen asleep in his arms from exhaustion. "'He pushed me to his bed but didn't fall asleep himself. "'He sat by my side all night like a guard dog. "'The morning had begun to dawn. "'The sound began to fade until it just disappeared.' My brother still couldn't sleep. He decided to start reading comics to pass the time. In the morning, when father had come home, my brother had gone out to look for tracks. But since it had snowed all night and morning, all the tracks were covered. For the next week, my brother visited my room several times a night to make sure I was sleeping safely. We started talking more about what happened. Neither of us ever mentioned what happened to anyone. I asked him why he didn't call 112 but he just shook his head who would have believed me he was right it would have sounded like a prank invented by little boys my brother also said he was annoyed that he didn't flash the light to the window sooner he would have wanted to see what the creature looked like I was just happy that I hadn't seen anything I'm also happy to know I'm not crazy it wasn't a dream I have a witness my brother experienced it too and he remembers it better than I do No one else has to believe me. No one else would believe me. We have no physical evidence of what happened. And it happened years ago. It's very possible that we were just kids with overactive imaginations. I'm certainly not denying that possibility. However, I'm interested to know if anyone else has experienced something similar. And if you have, did you see it? That creature? And if you did, what did it look like?
1: Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod.
0: Don't forget you can send in your own true terrifying tale, either in writing or send us a voicemail. Head over to disturbedpodcast.com submit to see all the submission options. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and early releases, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcasts. Or if you're an Apple user, you can subscribe directly in Apple Podcasts. And a big thanks to our newest supporters, and we have a lot of them. Taylor Rose Jolie, Justin R., Jasmine S., Vanessa, Maggie Lauren Debbis, Julia, Lacey Rose, Ashley Gott, Jocelyn Fisher, Luke Polk, Marcus Williams, Rebecca Wood, Johanna Ellis, Heather Guerrero, Kristen Logan, Amber Davis, and plenty more that I'll be shouting out in our next episode. A huge thanks to all of you for supporting the show. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio Co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. Next week we will be dark for Thanksgiving. I hope you all have a fun and safe time with family. And don't forget to stay safe out there, y'all.